1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Listen to these amazing words. Read with me, will you? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be uh, yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. So the words that Wes just read from us from 1 Peter were written by Peter to some Christians who were going through some really tough times. It seemed that the times they were living in were filled with social unrest and pressure that they were experiencing. There was some cultural alienation and division. There were struggles at work, struggles in the neighborhood, struggles in the marketplace. There were struggles in some of their homes. Can anybody relate to that kind of day? It's much like what we experience today. These Christians, though, were living with an undercurrent of anxiety, which is also pretty prevalent in the world that we're living in. So while they were living in first century pre-Christian world, the gospel just beginning to spread, we live in what's been called the post-Christian world of the 21st century. And those earliest Christians in that first century, much like us, have an unacceptable belief and behavior, according to the world, that gets them and got them in trouble. The same thing gets us in trouble. And what it is, what's so unacceptable to the, the Roman Empire in the first century and to the Western world in our century is to be devoted to the exclusivity of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, the world has never been able to stomach the idea that there is only one way to God, and that's through Christ. And so when we live in a world like that, as did those as Christians in the first century, as we do even in the 21st century, we experience intense pressure, social pressure, to conform to the world and to privatize or minimize our faith. And so Peter writes to Christians experiencing that kind of pressure, undergoing hardship, being alienated from their culture, being shut out of the day-to-day -day way of living life. 
As far as we can know, all that they went through, the only thing that we don't have in common is that I don't think they were wearing face coverings, but I'm not sure. You know, Peter writes as an apostle who was no stranger to hardship and suffering. He himself had gone through much of that and would still go through more, even as he writes that letter. We know that he was a man who struggled with faith. He was an apostle who denied Christ more than once. And yet he got through that. He was restored by Christ. So Peter writes with knowledge of what it means to struggle with faith, what it means to struggle with the Christian life, what it means to be faithful in following Christ in difficult times. And what he writes in his first letter, as we have it in our scripture, two letters by Peter, 1 Peter, what he writes as he starts in chapter 1, as Wes read for, for us from verses 3 to 12, is not a list of things that people need to do to be more faithful. It's not a list of behaviors that should be expected among those who are going to follow Christ. It's not even a list of spiritual disciplines that if they pursued them, they'd be in better shape. I think what Peter offers to his original readers and he offers to us is a list of the privileges we have in Christ as being people who have been born again, born anew, have experienced what we think of as being born again, Christ granting us faith, God granting us faith in Christ. Peter writes this letter again to Christians in trouble. He wants to help them to keep believing. He wants to to help them to know how to live in a way that brings glory to God. He wants to comfort them in their suffering because they are experiencing real hardship, suffering, and beginning to experience what we think of as real persecution for their faith. And he points out four privileges we have in Christ, four privileges God grants us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the four wonderful privileges that Peter points out. They are a living hope, a lasting inheritance, an inexpressible joy, all tied to an amazing salvation. So that's what we're going to look at. We'll start with the living hope. Peter writes, according to his great mercy, God the Father's great mercy through Christ, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, we all hope for something. We're created that way. We are, as humans, a bunch of hopers. It's what we do. We always think that something can be better than it is now and some part of life will improve as we go along. We hope for that which we haven't seen yet. In fact, we live our lives looking forward to and preparing for something even better than we've already experienced. We all do it. It's what we hope for. I mean, if you're a child at home and you're thinking about starting up school and you're hoping that you'll be able to start up in person if you go to a, to a school. And if you're a parent at home that has school children who go to a school, you are really hoping that school opens in person so your kids can go to school. If you're a little closer to my age, you're just hoping your health holds out for a little while longer. Or maybe if you're past my age, you're hoping your health might be restored to what it was before in some ways. We all hope for something, don't we? And yet, we live in a day that has an epidemic of hopelessness, that people aren't sure they can find hope anymore. So Peter says, as Christians, we've been giving a living hope, and he contrasts living hope with, well, a dead hope. What's a dead hope? It's a hope in something that won't come to pass. It's 
hope in something that's futile to hope for. It's hope in the world, hope in man. That could be a dead hope, but a living hope is a hope in the living Christ. The reason Peter can say you have a living hope is because you have a living Christ. And because of that, we have a wonderful, amazing hope that even in the epidemic of hopelessness, we hold out to the world a hope that is living and will stay alive in us because of Christ. That's the first privilege. You have a living hope. But secondly, if you're in Christ, you have been granted a lasting inheritance. It'll last. And the words that Peter uses are are wonderful, amazing words. He says it's an imperishable inheritance. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It will not go away. Now, we know that there's a good chance that at least some of the Christians that Peter was writing to in this letter, living in Asia Minor, what is now considered Turkey, had been exiled from Rome. That They were not living in their homes. They had been kicked out of Rome because of their faith in Christ, and they had settled in Asia Minor. They had lost their goods, their property, their inheritance. They couldn't count on that anymore. Peter's writing to them and saying, you've got a lasting inheritance. You may have lost what you thought you would have. And some of these Christians who had become Christians, had been born again in families, and had come to faith, and the rest of their families hadn't. And some of them were literally kicked out of the family. They were were disinherited. They had lost their inheritance because they had committed themselves to the exclusive lordship of Jesus. Peter writes to them and says, don't worry. You have an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable. It's kept in heaven for you. But not only that, notice that in verse 5, he says these words. He says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only does God grant an imperishable or unfading or a lasting inheritance, He also guards us for that inheritance. Those who are his, he will keep to the end. He will guard them. And it's tied to our faith. It's through our faith that we are kept with God. So even though trials and sufferings come and affect us as children of the Heavenly Father, he will keep us, Peter says. So much so that Peter even says in verse 6 that we can rejoice in our sufferings in our hardships that we have to go through for a little while he says he says they're not meaningless they're not mistakes they're serving a purpose in our lives part of the purpose they serve is as he puts it to test the genuineness of our faith to see if our faith is real to test if it is strong to see that it will keep going One of the redemptive purposes I'm convinced that hardship and suffering can serve in a Christian's life is that it can wean us away from our self-sufficiency. Because we're all self-sufficient in so many ways. We, We think we can do this. I can get this. I can live this Christian life. I can work this out. Yeah, I struggle and I have hardships and I have a sin nature that overcomes me at times, but I can do this. But then real suffering comes. Real hardship comes in our lives, and we realize, I'm not sure I can do this. I need God. 
And there's nothing that delights the Father more than we are dependent on him. And so hardship and suffering in the Christian's life can wean us off our self-sufficiency and make us more apt to be turning to God and finding him to be completely sufficient for us. And our faith gets challenged. It gets challenged, but it grows in this way. Let me illustrate it like this. When I was in high school, I decided one summer that I was going to go out for the cross-country team that fall when school started up. I figured I better start running if I was going to run long distances, so I began to run. I went out and convinced my parents to buy me some new shoes, you know, some running shoes. Not too unlike this, maybe not quite like this. I don't think they had this brand that I have now, but... I went out and got some new shoes. Back then, the brand that all the cross-country runners were wearing were called Tigers. But I got some shoes, and I started to run. And I ran, and I ran. And because I lived in Virginia Beach, it's pretty flat there, you might know, and a lot of concrete. So where I lived, near Pembroke Mall, I would run in my neighborhood. Then I would run to the mall and just run around the parking lot and just run and run and run until I couldn't run anymore. And I kept doing that day after day and found that I could run a little bit longer, a little bit harder. And with new shoes, of course you know, don't you kids, that new shoes make you run faster, make you run longer. Actually, back in my day, when you got a new pair of PF flyers, anybody remember those? You could run faster and jump higher in PF flyers. Well, I didn't have PF flyers, but I could run. I was convinced my new shoes would help me. And so I got to the new school year, and I went out for the cross-country team. And the first day of practice, the, the coach simply said, go out and run for an hour, anywhere you want. Just be back in an hour. Well, my high school was just a block away from Pembroke Mall. So I went over and ran around like I did all summer, ran around the mall, around the parking lot for an hour, came back. I can do this. This is not so hard. Second day of practice, coach put us on a bus, drove us to the oceanfront at Virginia Beach, told us go run for another hour, but this time run in the sand and not near the shore. Run where it's nice and soft for an hour. And I found that my new running shoes, they weren't so helpful as you're slogging through soft sand. And I found that I don't remember having muscles hurt like that before. And it was a challenge, and it was going to build up some, some new muscle, and it was sure going to build up some stamina and some lung capacity, because it was hard. You know, hardships do that to our faith. It's like running on the beach. Sometimes hardships make us lean further into God, asking him to be sufficient for us, trusting him more for that which we're not sure we can do. And I think that's what Peter's talking about as he talks about this lasting inheritance. It's tied to our faith, which Peter will say needs to grow, and, and God's going to work on that because it is more valuable than gold, Peter says, your faith. More valuable than gold, which is the standard of value in our world. He says it's more valuable even than that. So we have a couple of wonderful privileges. We have the privilege of this amazing living hope. We have the privilege of a lasting, imperishable inheritance. Thirdly, we have a privilege of what Peter calls inexpressible joy. Because he says, though you've not seen Christ, you believe in him. You love him, in fact. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory.
So Peter spent three years with Jesus, three years in person with Christ, seeing him daily, hearing him teach all the time, watching him work miracles. Three years of personal encounter. But he's writing to people who have never seen Jesus in their lives. They have to take it by faith that Jesus is who he said he is. That Jesus could do what he said he could do. That Jesus would do what he said he would do. Because that's really what Peter has in mind when he speaks of faith. It's this whole idea that, in fact, faith is believing that Jesus is who he said he is. That he could do what he said he could do, and he did that. And he will do what he said he would continue to do. Well, Peter's readers had to believe that by faith. Peter had seen Jesus, loved him. He says, you, you haven't seen him, but you love him. And the result that happens in that is that you receive an inexpressible joy. Joy beyond words. Joy beyond just feeling good or being happy. Real, deep-down joy. That's a privilege of the Christian. It's a privilege that not everyone in the world has because they don't know God through Christ. You know, the writer of Hebrews said that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so that's what Peter is saying. You haven't seen this, but you're convicted of the truth of it. You're assured that you can follow Jesus because he is real and he will do everything he said he would do. So you have access to an inexpressible joy that doesn't come from anything that you do but what Christ has done. Not just happiness, but the fruit of the Spirit working in your life. The fruit of him producing joy and increasing it more and more. A living hope, a lasting inheritance, an inexpressible joy. And then lastly, Peter says, this is really all tied to this thing that's called salvation. This thing that God has provided. Verse 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation of your souls. He used that word souls. Souls really meaning the deepest, fullest expression of who you are. Much like when the scripture uses that word heart to, to describe the inward part of us. Soul here probably means that fullest expression of every part of you, who you are. And Peter says, you have received, if you have been born into this living hope, if you have this imperishable inheritance, you have received this wonderful salvation of your soul. And it's so amazing, he goes on to write, verses 10 to 12, that as the prophets of the Old Testament began to write about what Jesus would be like, what God was doing as he was working the plan of salvation in the world, the prophets themselves, as they wrote, wondered about what they were writing. They weren't sure what it all meant. I don't think that's saying that they were writing the way I wrote some of my school essays when I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> I didn't know what I was writing. You, anybody ever use cliff notes? You know what I mean. <laughs> you didn't really have to know what you were writing as long as you had cliff to tell you what to put on the paper. I wrote some papers like that. Peter's not writing like that. He's not saying that the, the Old Testament prophets wrote because they had cliff notes. <laughs> They did have the Holy Spirit inspiring their very words. But what he's saying is that they wrote just wondering, what's the time going to be like? 
when Christ comes? What's it going to look like when God provides salvation for people? They wondered that. They received the message. It's, it's really not just for you that you're receiving the message. It's not just for your time. It's really for all those yet to come, people like us who get to experience the wonder of God's word that expresses the fullness of God's plan of redemption from the first page to the last. But Peter goes on to say that not only that, this salvation that you have, not only do the prophets, did the prophets who wrote about it wonder about it, he even says at the end of this passage, verse 12, that the, the angels even long to look at such things. Angels long to understand more what God is up to in his work of redemption. Angels who are not sinful, who have never tasted of sin, sinless celestial beings who look down on earth and see fallen mankind and who wonder, how could they possibly be saved? Who look at the depravity that's all around us, men and women, boys and girls, our, our hearts captured by sin, fallen nature that we have. And maybe those angels, when they sing, and they do sing in heaven, we know that from scripture, I wonder if maybe they don't sing a version of Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, And Can It Be? Just their version might go a little differently. As they look down on fallen mankind, they might sing, And Can It Be That They Should Gain An Interest in the Savior's Blood? Died he for them who caused his pain? For them whom him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, our God, shouldst die for them? That's what they sing. They wonder, how could that be? And, and it's all summed up in that, that two words that is the, the transition for Wesley's hymn, amazing love. Angels delight when they see one sinner come to faith in Christ. They delight in the amazing love of God shown us. So Peter, as he writes about our salvation, concerning this salvation, verse 10, that even angels long to look into, that the prophets wondered how it would all turn out, that when Isaiah wrote about a suffering servant, when Jeremiah wrote about a new covenant, when Daniel wrote about all these wild things that might happen in this world related to the coming of a Messiah, they longed to know more. Well, we know more because we have been granted this incredible salvation. How privileged we are. God has granted us a living hope, a lasting inheritance, inexpressible joy, and amazing salvation, the benefits of which we are experiencing both now and will forever. The sad fact is, of course, that many Christians in our day live beneath the privileges they've been granted. We live beneath them. We don't think about them. We don't receive them from God as wonderful gifts. We take our eyes off of Christ, we put our eyes on the world or on man, and we wonder, we too get anxious we wonder if we have enough hope to make it through. We wonder if our faith will last long enough. Oh, if we would just look at the privileges. You know, the, the Puritans of 17th century England, as we've said before, 
would tell people to pray God's promises back to him. They'd say, plead the promises. Plead the promises back to God. He'll answer those. He made the promises. Well, not only do we need to plead the promises, we need to live the privileges. We need to be secure in all that God has granted us. These wonderful advantages of being born again into a living hope, a lasting inheritance, an inexpressible joy, a great salvation. So as the, the band comes back to lead us in our song of response, let me ask you again, what are you hoping for today? An end to the pandemic? Yeah. A return to normal life? Whatever that is. A restoration of the four months that we've lost in this different strange time? If you are in Christ today, the scripture exhorts you to rejoice in the great privileges that are yours in Christ. And even though you are going through various trials, and we are, for a season, and we will, know that God is refining your faith, which is more valuable than anything else in the entire world.